he stands up and he says, well, guys, you have been talking about spirituality and this and that. I want to ask you a question. Uh, I'll begin with you, Makario. Do you believe in God? And it surprised me, it hit me momentarily. And what is so interesting, this is something that has happened to me in my life a number of times. A totally spontaneous answer came to me without any problem. And I said to him, I believe in God because I believe in the unconscious. That's Dr. Macario Geraldo, today's guest on the Group Dynamics Dispatch. Welcome to the Group Dynamics Dispatch. I'm Angelo Siliberti, and I'm excited to share with you conversations that explore what it means to live and grow within groups, from our early lives to our professional role as leaders. If you enjoy what you hear and would be interested in supporting this podcast, please consider liking and subscribing, as this really does help. Most importantly, thank you for listening. Today's guest is Dr. Macario Geraldo. The ninth of 10 children, Macario was born in a remote village in Colombia into a family of small tenant coffee farmers. At the age of 10, Macario left his home to join the Christian Brothers, a Catholic order which provided him with the opportunity for a formal education. An excellent student and later teacher of math and languages, Macario won a Fulbright scholarship to study linguistics at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. As part of his master's degree program, Macario wrote two textbooks for teaching English at the elementary school level, which became an essential part of the curriculum in a number of schools throughout his home country. Macario began his studies in clinical psychology during the summer of 1968, the same year he left the Christian Brothers. In the early 1970s, Macario became a faculty member with the Washington School of Psychiatry, an institution that embraces pluralism in psychoanalytic theory and practice. The Washington School of Psychiatry encouraged and supported Macario's early study of Lacan and Lacanian psychoanalysis in Paris during the 1990s. Since then, Macario has been a founding member of the Lacanian Forum of Washington, D.C. In 2012, Macario published The Dialogues In and Of the Group, the first book to apply Lacanian psychoanalysis to the analytic group setting. A longtime member of AGPA and the IAGP, Macario has conducted numerous institutes and workshops in both the U.S. and around the world. Having recently celebrated his 90th birthday, Macario will soon be publishing his memoir, From the Andes to the Couch. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Macario Geraldo. Well, good morning, Macario. Welcome to the podcast. Good morning, Angelo. First off, I'd just like to say uh, happy birthday. I understand you've recently celebrated your 90th birthday. Yes, yes, on July 10. Thank you. Well, I thought that we can actually then kind of go to the beginning because I would love to hear you tell us a bit about you and your backstory and how you became a group analyst. Yes, I guess I can start with one of the little stories that I tell. I'm the ninth child of a family of 10 children, typical family from the Andes of Colombia. So I grew up in the, in the Andes. The closest home to ours was about five miles away. I had plenty of room to wander around, and I consider myself very lucky because I had a very well-structured family where father had his place, mother had her place, seven boys and three girls. At that time, the boys were supposed to help in the farm. We had a little coffee farm. Schooling was one day boys, one day girls. And that was my story. You know, I, I began that way. And very early, I, I learned how, how to pick up the coffee beans and so forth. <laughs> and my brothers had a number of names for me, but one was uh, Quick Hands, because they found that I was very quick and good in picking up the coffee beans and put them in the basket and so forth. So from very early, for whatever reasons, I developed a great interest in education, in reading. 
I still remember the three books where I learned to read, and the titles were Alegría de Leer, Número Uno, Alegría de Leer, Número Dos, Alegría de Leer, Número Tres, The Joy of Reading, Number One, The Joy of Reading, Number Two, The Joy of Reading, Number Three. One of my brothers, who actually we became very, very good friends, and uh, for a number of years I used to call him the, the John Wayne of my family because he was very much like the John Wayne in a number of ways, including physically. I was about seven, and one day he says, this little wimp, he just doesn't want to work in the farm anymore. And probably it was the day where I was supposed to go to school and not work in the farm. This is the story that my sisters tell me, I said very spontaneously, I was born for greater things. Yo nací para cosas más grandes. And so from there, my brothers and sisters started calling me big things, cosas grandes. But the interesting thing when we think about the psychoanalysis is that I don't remember anything that, of that story. It was my sister, the eldest sister, who told me, this is what happened. This is how we called you, which is very interesting. You see the force of repression operating very early in life, obviously because being born for greater things of a very simple campesino family of the Andes meant that very early in life, I went to Bogota. Really, I was separated from my family for three years as a child. And so in my analysis, a great deal of my work was uh, dealing with loss. In my uh, memoir, which I'm just about finishing this month, I tell the story of the of a very intriguing dream I had with my, my first analyst, uh, Marianne Goldberger, where I have a dream the night before, and the dream was a very short dream, eight plus one. So I arrive at the, at the analyst's office and I tell her, I had a dream last night, I don't know what it means, eight plus one. She said, well, what's in your mind? Let's see what you come up with. And for the next almost six months, from that dream, I said in my memoir, what came up was another symbol, eight minus one. So the whole issue of loss, of castration. And so for the next six months, I was crying and crying and crying like a baby. That, that was a very central part of my analysis. I say in my introduction to my memoir, that river of tears has been very useful to me, that it has fertilized my life in innumerable ways. Being able to deal with mourning, so central in our work with patients, uh, was something that was extremely helpful for me and, and that has influenced a great deal of my life and my work. Yeah, such a poignant and beautiful image, but also just how greater things entail so much loss. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Because that three years you spent away from your family, that was to begin your education in a more formalized way? Well, a cousin of my mother was a, a LaSalle brother, a, a Christian brother, a, the member of the religious order of the Catholic Church. My guess is that my, my mother was in touch with him in some way. He was a member of the Academy of History in Colombia. And so... I think she wanted to have at least one of her children have a greater education because the others had maybe one year of education or two years or three years. That was about it, you know. And my father was an orphan that had, had very little education as well, but my mother had more education. She came from a family of the town of Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania is the name of the town, where there were people that have gone to more education. So anyway, I was sent to the uh, Christian Brothers, but the idea was that I was going to become a Christian brother, a member of the religious order. So I was brought into the order at the age of 10. And I was there with the origin order of 10 from, from 1943 to 1968 when I left the order, you know, so 25 years. So it's a whole period of my life that very different, you know. Uh, very important in many ways, uh, very interesting. And it was from there that eventually, you know, I 
I got a Fulbright scholarship to come to the United States and ended up here at Georgetown University. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm thinking about what you're saying about loss and Lacan. You know, I I understand we're going to be getting more into Lacan and the inspiration you have with Lacan, but it seems like so central in Lacanian thought is loss and lack, but also how that becomes a kind of engine of becoming and that we move into the world. Would you say more about that, how you began to get interested in Lacan then and also into group? Yes. Well, I was a a student at the Washington School of Psychiatry beginning in 1970. I went through two of the main programs of the, actually three of the main programs of the school. Uh, One was the Advanced Individual Psychotherapy Training Program which was kind of a substitute for analysis, since at that time, we psychologists were not accepted as analysts by the Psychoanalytic Association, unless we promised that we would not be clinicians. It's incredible, but we could only be researchers or teachers, you know. Anyway, the Washington School had a number of analysts, social workers, etc. They developed this advanced psychoanalytic training program, basically helping their students to have the training like an analyst would have, you know. So I went through that program, was very intense, three years. And then I went through the group program, which was also very intense, where we would have to sometimes do demonstrations in working with a group. And the faculty would be using a one-way mirror to look at our work and how we would work with the group. It was a very, very good training. It was a wonderful training at the Washington School of Psychiatry. And I also had a training in uh, working with the adolescents. They had uh, another program for the, uh, the work with adolescents. So I went through all of the programs of the school. And so I started in 1970. And by the end of 1974, I was invited into the faculty. And from there on, I was in the faculty until about 10 years ago or less when I retired from the faculty. I was one of the founders in the school of the program of uh, Object Relations Theory and Therapy Training Program with David Scharf, the director of the school, and his uh, wife, and a number of other uh, people. That program was very active in the 80s. And then in the early 90s, uh, David Sharp began to think of the usefulness of exposing the faculty and the students of the school to French psychoanalysis. And so a conference was organized for faculty and students, a group selected from from the school to go to Paris for two weeks and be exposed to important people in in, in the French uh, psychoanalytic uh, endeavor along with another analyst, Dr. Justin Frank, MD. And so he and I went to Paris in the summer of 1994, spent two very intense weeks there, wonderful weeks. And so we were exposed to different aspects of French psychoanalysis. Among them, the most important for me was uh, the lecture and influence of uh, Jean-Marc Scodillier and Francoise Davoine a couple that were teachers at the Ecole d'Institut in Paris, very Lacanian, of course. The first lecture I heard from them was a lecture on their work with psychosis. And I was absolutely moved in, in a way that I can never forget. They described their work with psychotics, how they would use, I visited their, their apartment in, in Paris, even with one case, they use something to lift up a very heavy stone from the street up into the balcony of their home and be as a part of the work with a psychotic person, you know. So this was a very creative couple. But basically the the phrase, I'm not quoting it exactly, but what I remember that uh, impressed me is what they said, that the psychotic is a subject that is trying to write a history that has never been written. And I thought that was marvelous. Such a new window into psychosis 
I think that that is what put the seed of Lacan in me, because they were the Lacan. They were members of other public relations and other avenues in in France, but the the Lacanian theory was the central one that was, you know. And so from there, I began to study Lacan and go to conferences uh, in many places and gradually began to teach. Yeah, it's such a wonderful example because it really shows how Lacanian thought kind of shifts the whole way we think about both the symptom and the subject. Yes, yes. And it's interesting because, you know, when I talk about Lacan, when I feel into Lacan myself, I mean, I, I both find his ideas inspiring and incredibly frustrating. Yes. <laughs> and when I talk to other people, people either say, oh, my God, Lacan, I can't understand anything that guy says. I, why, I don't even want to bother. You know, people have very polarized reactions to Lacan. Yes, yes. And, and so I'm, I'm curious why Lacan for you and what did Lacan inspire or shift in the way that you work that has kept you so engaged with uh, these ideas? Yes, and what you just said, Angelo, is very much the case. And I, I write a comment on that in my book, The Dialogue Scene and of the Group, is that just as much as you have experienced yourself and other people studying Lacan, that when I began to study Lacan, I, I, would, I would be just furious at times. You know, what the heck are you talking about? Why don't you use simple language? You know, and I think that Lacan felt and thought that Freud, the genius of Freud, he was a great writer, Freud, but that he had been so clear in explaining unclear things that people sometimes missed his message. And so, in a sense, Lacan wants to get the reader to not understand first, to struggle with not understanding. And he gives a, a great emphasis on not understanding, puts us through frustration from the very beginning to not understand. But if we want to keep working at it, then we have those moments which are just fantastic. We say, Wow, I really understand something that I thought I understood before, and now I understand. So he has a kind of a very gongory style, you know, <laughs> that uh, is, is in, in most of his writings, you know. And of course, I struggle with that. I still struggle with that because I keep studying and reading his uh, writings. But, you know, it's also his uh, message about communication. Because he talks about communication is uh, very much the art of not communicating, you know, because people think that they understand, but uh, they hear the words, they hear the said. There are the two words in French, uh, le dit is the said versus the dire, the saying. And so he, he puts a great emphasis in the distinction between what is said and the saying, what is behind the said. And so what is behind the said is what Lacan wants us to get to from what we read, the, the words that we hear, you know. So that's, uh, that's very central in Lacanian theory, you know. And so it really prompts a shift in the way we listen. Yes, yeah. It's interesting because I realize now how different it is the way I listen to from the way I used to listen to. Because the way I used to listen to from my training was in what we are taught to be empathic. If you are empathic, you are listening to the feelings. How does this person feel? And you're trying to put yourself in his or her shoes. That's not Lacan. That's the imaginary. Lacan is listening to the signifiers the words, the phrases, and the repetition of certain words that the patient uses. And it's fascinating because you actually develop a skill of being able to listen more and better because you don't have to spend so much energy in terms of the general understanding of empathy, listening to the feelings. You're listening to the signifiers. But the paradox is that if you listen to the signifiers and begin to explore those signifiers with the patient, you really get to a deeper sense of empathy with the patient. So it becomes a different gateway. 
Yes, yes. This is wonderful because we're starting to really get into some of the pieces I've been so excited to talk with you about. You talk about the imaginary and in order to lay a foundation for talking about what you describe in the book as the dialogues in of the group, would you first talk about just how Lacan sees the subject and the three registers? Right, right, yeah. I prepared this little card. It's the only one I would use. I don't know. Do you see it? Mm -hmm. There's an S with a line through it. There's what looks like a greater symbol, like a sideways V, a lesser lesser symbol, and then a lowercase a. Yeah. This is, in Lacanian theory, the theme of the fantasy. It's very central in many aspects of Lacanian theory. So in this formula, which are very often I, I repeat and bring to the students because it's very helpful. I find those uh, mathemes from Lacan extremely helpful in terms of theory-wise understanding. This is the bar subject in relationship to object A, to object petit A. In other words, the divided subject in relationship to the object cause of desire. That's basically the, the whole thing of that. And then I'll give the other example, which I, I use constantly, from uh, Freud's description of his visit to his daughter and observing the game of his grandson, in the very famous Ford Da. And he observes his grandson, and he's, he's visiting his daughter a number of times, and he notices that this kid plays a similar game, but especially one time he's in the he's in the cradle. He's I mean I think he's about 15, 16 months old by then, and he has this little uh, game. I guess he had a, something like a yo-yo, you know. He throws it and retrieves it. But Freud notices that he does this when he's watching his mother about to leave the room. And as she leaves the room, the kid throws it and picks it back and begins to utter the beginning of two German words, fort, da. Basically, the two words are, they're gone. Presence, absence. Freud becomes very intrigued with this observation. And he makes a big deal about it. He says that this is the entrance of the subject into language, into the symbolic system. Lacan picks up this example from Freud. And of course, Lacan does what he does with some of the issues of Freud. He expands it extraordinarily. Because now Lacan has the the whole uh, knowledge of linguistics, because he's exposed to Ferdinand de Saussure and Roman Jacobson, then Lacan begins to see something very much more than what Freud saw. Lacan begins to see here that this is the elementary cell of language, the binary signifier, how you need two signifiers to interact with each other to begin the process of language, of combination. That's the first thing. But then what Lacan teaches us, is, is, uh, and by the way, it's, it's in Seminar 11, uh, beginning on page 62 of the seminar. You know, it's about two pages. You know, this is just a marvelous rendition that Lacan makes of this. And so Lacan says, just summarizing, that what the child is doing at this time, the fact that the child looks at the mother what she's about to leave, the child experiences trauma. Trauma means loss. The child now has to deal with the fact that mother may not be there. But now the child has a way to deal with that. And what Lacan says is that with that binary signifier, 
the child, a part of the child goes with the mother while still remaining part of himself. And that from now on, the mother will not be the same and the child will not be the same. Meaning the mother can be present in absence and the same thing for the subject. That could be the origin in some way of the bar subject, the entrance into language. As a matter of fact, I think I had it here, yeah. <laughs> I forgot I had put this in. Can you see it? I can see it, yeah. yeah. So It this... says fort with S1 underneath and da with S2 and an arrow going between them. Yes, it's signifier one and signifier two. That's the binary signifier. The binary signifier is the joining of two signifiers. And then he's, he's going to come with this famous phrase. This is a central phrase in Lacanian theory, which says, the signifier represents the subject to another signifier. So signifier one represents the subject, and the subject is here somewhere to another signifier, signifier two. The subject is gone. The subject has been subsumed by language. And so from there, we're going to have two central aspects of the human subject. One, a subject that is dead, quotation mark, meaning has been taken over by language. Another subject, which is the body, the object, the flesh. And so how is the body? How is the being of the body and the being of language together? That is very central. That's why I put this machine to begin with, <laughs> because we are dealing with those, two be with those two aspects of being with the subject. And if you read those two pages, 62, 63, 64, you will understand how Lacan is really bringing as central in his theory, how we approach our work with, with patients, that that's why we are bar subjects. Yeah. We are subjects that uh, have been denatured, that have been moved from the world of nature into the world of culture. And how to deal with both is our work. That is the work of analysis. You talk in the book about uh, the dialogues in the group and the dialogues of the group. Yes. The dialogues in the group being related to the imaginary, engaging yes. with the imaginary, the dialogues of the group being an engagement with the symbolic. Right, right. Can you talk a bit more about that and also kind of give us some examples so that we can really ground it in the felt sense of being in the group? Right, yeah. It's a very important uh, distinction. The dialogues in the group is really the dialogue that is taking place in the group. And the dialogue that is taking place in the group, of course, people develop feelings for each other. And people begin to have an idea, a sense of the other person. So they begin to put this thing together in a number of ways. All of that is the imaginary, very central. That is the ego in action. And because it is the ego in action, there is a demand of the ego for similarity. There is a demand for, you have to understand me. You have to know who I am. That's the demand. That is the demand of each member. His demand and his desire. Each member of the group wants to be understood by the other. But because it is the ego, because the ego is really a foreign self to some degree. The ego contains a lot of aggression. If you're not like me, I don't like you. If you don't vote for me, I don't like you. <laughs> if you're not a Democrat, I don't like you. <laughs> if you're not a Republican, I don't like you. I'm just expanding a little bit because this is into the society, you know. Right. That is going to be right there. So. The work in the group is such a marvelous and such a demanding work 
because to the extent that we can begin to handle these different registers and help the members of the group get into the structure of the human subject, all kinds of interesting things happen. Just a quick example that comes to my mind of many years ago. This was a, a member of the group in, in Asia, from an Asian culture. And he actually had been in analysis with a, another analyst, a friend of mine, I think for three years. And he recommended for him to join my group. The basic conflict that he had was, was with his girlfriend. They were fighting all the time. They were in trouble all the time. And this would be what he would bring into the group very often. So after working with this issue, with the imaginary in the group, getting feedback and this and that, I think it was about probably another three years that he stayed in the group. He begins to say, I think I'm okay. I think I'm ready to leave the group. And people, I remember somebody said, but what do you mean leaving the group? What's happened with your girlfriend? You're fighting with her all the time. And he was, I, I cannot recall exactly what he said, but it was marvelous. He said, yeah, we still fight, but she is she and I am I. <laughs> Actually, yes, we fight, but we don't get so upset about our fights. Very interesting. They had done the work of the imaginary and something of the symbolic started to take place, you know. So that's a, an example that I would give. Another example that I quote sometimes is more, this is more of a saying from the people in Bogota, in Colombia, in my, the, the capital of Colombia. And the people in Bogota have this saying, cada uno tiene sus cada unadas which literally means each one has his each ones, meaning they belong to that person only, and we must recognize that. And so from there, one phrase that I often use in working with couples or with individuals and so forth, applying this is what I say, right now I have a family that I have been working with, and the husband has really been able to use the phrase marvelously because I say to him, it is with you, but it is not about you. It's a way of explaining the work of transference in couples and individuals and with the analyst. It is with the analyst, but it is not about the analyst. It is about the repetition of the person's history. And so it also helps in terms of not getting caught in counter-transference. To always listen at that level, that the patient is going to sometimes idealize me, sometimes to be in a lot of conflict with me and so forth. All of that is with me because I'm the analyst. But it is not about me. It is about her or his history that is coming into the work. So there, when I say it is, with, it is with me, that is the imaginary. But it is not about me, means it is connected with a set of signifiers that have, have organized the meaning of this person's life. So the achievement of that capacity to see that is the entry into the symbolic. Yes, yes. And, you know, to give you another example of, uh, and I'm remembering now a very beautiful article of a, an Australian analyst that uh, later on, if you're interested, I can send it to you with a work with a, a very disturbed woman. Uh, this woman uh, had a very traumatic relationship with her mother from the time she was a, a young child, and she was the the eldest child in a family of uh, several children. She was the only girl. The mother basically would uh, want her to be almost like her replacement and do everything that she couldn't do or wouldn't do. And a key phrase that this mother used with this girl a number of times, uh, te voy a romper el alma a patadas. I'm going to break your soul kicking you when she was angry. This became a central signifier 
in the symbolic, organizing the interactions of this girl with her and with other people. And so that signifier had a profound, profound traumatic influence in the life of this woman, a very intelligent, very capable woman that only gradually began to accept that she was very capable when working in an international organization, where for, for a number of years and times, he, her complaint in the, in the treatment was, I feel as if I don't exist. A fascinating phrase. I don't exist, meaning in the symbolic, I am somebody I don't want to be. Because even the symbolic, I am somebody that I want to be, my soul is going to be broken up by somebody kicking me. So, so any, anyway, you see all kinds of, uh, you know, vectors going there in the life of a person, you know. I think that that's so central to Lacan, really paying attention to the words and the signifiers that a client's using, that a group member's using. Yes. Really becomes an elevator down into the unconscious. Right, right. Which, which is a, something we miss if we're just ensnared in the imaginary of the feeling. Right, yeah, yeah. It's because if you read Kohut and many of the older relations, of course, the issue of, ther of uh, empathy is so central. But this has been a problem for the therapist. I mean, I remember as a young therapist coming home overwhelmed with what I was listening from the patients and so forth. and. I remember after I started studying Lacan, uh, studying Lacan and coming home and my wife says to me, Macario, you have changed. You don't come overwhelmed at home the way you used to come. She was right. I was listening in a different way and helped me to have empathy for the patient in a different way. Because if you're simply listening to feelings and trying to put yourself in the shoes of the other, as they say, it can be pretty overwhelming. People come from a horrendous stories sometimes into the group. Very painful, terrible. It's going to be very central how you listen to that because then you, you're listening to the real and you need to begin to identify that the signifiers connected with that real to begin to free the patient from that. Because see, the, the role of the signifier there are two roles that we could say we can apply to the signifier. Uh, Jacqueline Miller describes them very well. One has to do with the signifier has a, a role of embodiment. Certain signifiers embody us. Certain signifiers incarnate us. Certain insults, certain words of excitement, inspiration, or degradation, incarnators, that is the embodiment. That's a central role of signifiers. The other role of signifiers is what we do in analysis, in therapy, by analyzing those signifiers, by helping the patient get in touch with those signifiers, those signifiers begin to lose some of the strength on the body. There is a kind of decanting. There's a kind of uh, filtering of the signifier. And so that's the other role in the treatment is elevation. So the signifier operates as embodiment in pathologies, what develops there, or as elevation where the signifiers by working through repression, begin to liberate us, you know. And uh, that is very central in Freudian theory, not just in Lacanian theory. That is something that surprised me when I really paid attention to that, because I, originally, I thought that feelings were repressed. And what Lacan says, following Freud, is that feelings are not repressed. What is repressed is the signifier attached to those feelings. And those feelings can be put into different people, into different situations, but they are there, they are alive, 
if we get in touch with the signifier, then we can really address the feeling. If we get in touch with the signifier, we can really address the feeling. Yes. Often we encounter in that process the real. Yes, absolutely. And can you talk more about that, the real, and how you see that, how you work with it in group? Let me give you first the key example from Freud, which is the example with the, with the wolfman. That the wolfman, in the family of the wolfman, there was uh, the wolfman and his sister, and he had a very, uh, very warm, very strong attachment to his sister in the relationship. And then the father in this family was very fond of a poet and would recite the poems of this uh, poet sometimes. So the family knew about this poet. It just happens that uh, this poet actually committed suicide. And it also happens that his sister committed suicide. The wolfman comes to Freud for treatment. And of course, one of the central issues is the suicide of his sister. And Freud begins to notice that he talks about his sister as, you know, with not much feeling, talks about her life and so forth. But when he talks about the poet, he's full of feeling. And so Freud begins to wonder about this. And this comes to a culmination when in one session, completely unconsciously, the wolfman describes the suicide of his sister the way the poet committed suicide, which is totally different. And so Freud grasps the moment. And it's, it's a very important moment in the treatment of the wolfman. And so there Freud explains how what happens with uh, certain feelings, especially with trauma, is that the feeling is, the feeling is displaced. So here we have the example of the wolfman through the signifier. He was displacing the feeling of the sister onto the poet to avoid, to deal with the trauma with his sister. You know, it was easier for him to connect it with the poet rather than with his sister. So this is typical. I give you another wonderful example that gave me a kid, an 11-year-old, about three or four years ago. The mother referred this kid to me, and it was a relative, so it was a very short treatment, and thank goodness was was very well. But the kid one day tells the mother, Mom, I am a coward. And the mother says, what do you mean you're a coward? What, What makes you come up with that? And he says to the mother, I'm a coward because my friend keeps inviting me to his home for a sleepover, but I'm scared. Uh, and I don't know why. I don't, I, don't, I don't want to go. So this was how the mother told me the story and referred the kid to, to me for treatment. A very normal kid, a very wonderful kid, many normal things going on. Basically, the beginning of a kind of phobia. And so this actually happened in the first session, maybe in part because I knew the family being a relative. So there was already a very important transference uh, taking place. So in the first session, I asked this kid, uh, well, welcome to the session. And and because he knew about me, (laughs) I told him, listen, you know, you know me, so but you come here because... uh, your mom is a little bit concerned about something that you said to her, so you don't have to call me Dr. Giraldo, but find another name to call me that still tells you that this space that we have here is special. And he said, well, I'm going to call you Mr. I said, okay, that's perfect. You'll call me Mr. Whenever we are in this session, you call me Mr. And so he did. It, it was my attempt to help the child have a boundary between what he knew of me already because of being a relative and helping use the space in a different way. So I say to him, you know why your mom is a little bit concerned. She told me that you said to her this, that, uh, did you say that to your mother? He said, yes, I said that to my mom. I said, okay, so listen, I'm going to give you this 
a piece of paper and I'll give you something to put the paper on. And I want you to write that phrase. And so he wrote the phrase, I'm a coward because ta 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 ta. Now, so I want you to watch and see what Mr. Geraldo is going to do, okay? And I say, okay. So give me the piece of paper. And I took my pen and I put a big question mark at the end of the phrase. Mm. And I said to him, here it is. I give you back the phrase. Why do you think I put a question mark to the end of the phrase? And he was uh, wondering, very cute kid, lovely kid, moving his head and said, listen, don't worry, I, I, just think about it. And whatever comes to your mind, uh, just tell me. It's, it's not a homework, just, you know. It took him about maybe three, four minutes. And after three, four minutes, he comes up with this one-liner, which is absolutely marvelous. And he says, because this is how I feel, but this is not how it is. Mm. It's just an extraordinary, it's a profound philosophical phrase that he, he didn't even know he was saying that. Right there you have the symptom. Right there you have the symbolic and the real. Because this is the way I feel. He feels the anxiety, the fear in his being. In his, he says, I'm a coward. How come I cannot go to my friends? Well, I'm afraid. I don't know what it is. It's a phobia. There is the real. Because this is how I feel. But this is not how it is. This is not how it is. He's talking about the symbolic, meaning language cannot explain to me what is happening. I need somebody to process this language so that I can understand what is going on. I mean, he gave me an absolutely beautiful example. I have used it with my students every now and then without giving more information about the family and so forth. I have another example that just comes to my mind now. This is maybe 20 years ago, or I had been working with a woman that was uh, in the technology business, and she was actually the head of a group in the firm. She was constantly frustrated by the fact that uh, she had to be explaining things to others, and they wouldn't understand, and this and that, and she was uh, a constant frustration. And then one day, after the long treatment, she says, Dr. Giraldo, I found something. And I said, yes, what did you find? And she says, I found by looking at the back of a car when I was driving today. Uh-huh. What was it? Tell me. And she said, I saw this phrase that really intrigued me. It was written right in, somebody put it in the back of the car. It says, don't believe everything you think. And I said, okay. So why was this so moving to you? And she said, because you know what this phrase has led me to? I just realized that my frustration is because I haven't realized that why I'm so frustrated is because I'm very competent. I know what has to be done in the technology of this and this and that. But the people in the office are learning. And I was assuming that they were supposed to understand that the way I understand it. Simple, but how she connected and how she that lowered her frustration, her mm -hmm. ability to work with the rest of the people in her firm. I mean, it's, it's another example that just comes to my mind as I talk to you, where you really see the power of signifiers. It's a phrase that somebody hears and, and somehow that phrase says, oh, wait a minute. And really they pay attention to that phrase and that phrase can do wonders in the life of the individual. Right. No, these are wonderful examples. I mean, that show just how simple but profound these right. shifts are. Yes. And I think that brings me to something that I love in Lacan, which is that there is a kind of radicality or, or an optimism that I think is woven into Lacanian thought about how we can change our relationship to the symptom throughout our life. Yes. Yes. You know, that is very central in Lacan. And, and that is the way how he differed from Freud. Because Freud 
I mean, he's the genius, the psychoanalysis. But Freud was uh, very pessimistic. He said that at the end of analysis, the castration complex was the rock that was difficult to penetrate. And Lacan says, no. If we can get through that rock, what comes out is enthusiasm. So Lacan moves to a point, a very optimistic point. Mm -hmm. Lacan goes through very pessimistic, uh, negative, uh, tough uh, issues. But the Lacanian theory has a positive If you get through the castration complex, even dealing with trauma becomes lighter. You can accept your life in a different way. You can look at things in a lighter way. And this is, for me, very important in Lacanian theory, you know. It's, uh, it, it, it can help to really develop a, what I call sometimes with my patients, to be able to honor the life of the patient, even when the life has been mixed with all kinds of different and very difficult situations, you know. Absolutely. And I love that word enthusiasm. That's, and, and I think it links to also, you know, desire and a lot of the desire that just clients come into therapy and group members come into the group with. Right. And desire is such a central idea in right. Lacan. And I wondered if you could share more about that. What is desire in Lacanian thought and why is it so central? Yes, yes. And he will quote uh, the philosopher Spinoza every now and then. Uh, Spinoza says that desire is the essence of man. And Hegel says that desire is the desire of the other. And so Lacan quotes these two philosophers very much, both to give support to his concept of desire and also to differentiate that uh, concept from the way philosophy has uh, done it. He uses Hegel as very central in the sense that desire comes from the other. Let's say from the mother as the first big other that gives the child the desire by bringing the child into life. So there is something where desire has to do with that, that it comes from the other. So there has been a transmission. It's a very important transmission. Without that transmission, the child may not be even be born, which, by the way, is a central example in psychiatry known pretty much worldwide, and that took place right here in John Hopkins University Hospital, not too far from where I am here in Baltimore. You probably have heard of this uh, example, you know, and I'll quote it right now because he uses it, you know, where because the, the staff is handling many, many children from the ghetto. They are taking all the measures, the health measures of each of the children and so forth. But a few babies die and the faculties are the loss. You know, the measures were normal, like other children, but they are puzzled. So they come together and they begin to inquire from all the staff and the extraordinary, incredible thing that they find is that those babies that had died, there was not a single staff member that really has connected with them. There had not been a connection. It's a central study of hospitalism from John Hopkins University done in the 50s by Rene Spitz and is known worldwide. It's, it's extraordinary. So it is true that desire comes from the other. So that part, he agrees with Hegel. But then what is going to be very central in Lacan is that the object for the philosophers, the object that we desire, that we go after, is in front of us, ahead of us. The object of psychoanalysis is the lost object is behind, is the object described by Freud as the lost object. 
and in Lacanian theory, is the loss of a part of the real when we come into language that creates that object. That is the lost object. So when we come into language, a part of us is cut off, literally. And so that part of us that is cut off is the origin of the object cause. The connection with that loss, because we have come into language, is what is going to be feeding the desire, is the lack. That's what creates the lack in us that is going to move us constantly to try to substitute other objects. And so we may find objects in desire, but the object cause of desire we never find. It is the cause, but we can never get to the object cause. If we get to the object cause, it's more by, the, by an experience of strangeness, by the experience of the uncanny in Freud. So where something appears that shouldn't be there, that is the closest to experiencing the object cause. Other than that, the object cause is behind, is feeding our desire to substitute many objects in desire. It is what led me to put that title of my book, The Dialogues In and Of the Group. The Dialogues In, meaning the imaginary in the group, and how people will bring the objects in desire, but not the object of desire, which is the object cause. <laughs> and how the object cause is going to be approached especially through the symbolic. So that's precisely what moved me to put that into the title of the book. Oh, that's great to know. Yeah, to begin yeah. To, to get the, the reader to pay attention to the contrast between uh, object in desire versus object of desire. The object of desire is the object cause. The object in desire is all the subject, all the objects that we substitute, you know, a car, a friendship, a profession, on and on, you know. Mm. So the objects that we move towards in our life, we move towards them because in some sense, there's some kind of uncanny resemblance to a lost object from the past, mm -hmm. the original lost object, right? which is in some ways, I'm also hearing you say a kind of fantasy, actually. Yes, yes, of course. Uh, this is precisely why this machine, the bar subjects, is in relationship to object A. Ah, is the machine, right. the fantasy. We are constantly in that process, you know. Uh, mm -hmm. it, but then rather than being a problem, it seems like desire is the engine of life or the engine of the coming for Lacan. Absolutely, absolutely. And by the way, to give... Uh, importance to Winnicott. I studied Winnicott a great deal. Uh, it was the analyst that I studied the most, uh, uh, Melanie Klein too, but mostly Winnicott. And Winnicott, of course, he gave Lacan the origin of OGA with the transitional object. Where Winnicott talks about the transitional object, that is the beginning. That's, Lacan reads that, and then Lacan takes it further. You know, that's what Lacan did. But you know, but Winnicott has a wonderful expression when he's talking about the transitional object. And he's talking about what he calls illusion. But he says, I am trying to convey the importance of the substance of illusion. And he uses that word, the substance of illusion, which completely agrees with what Lacan is talking about. Because that substance that is behind the illusion is the real. I think that this actually leads into the final question that I wanted to talk with you about, which in the last chapter of the book, you share a kind of edited talk that you gave at AGPA on spirituality mm -hmm. and the intersections between psychoanalysis and spirituality. 
And I wondered if you'd be willing to share more with us your ideas about how you see this and how also you see what you call the ethics of the soul. Right, right. Yeah. That that was a very interesting panel. I was surprised myself by the answer I gave when uh, we were talking about spirituality. There was a panel of three of us. Yeah. And uh, so he he stands up and, 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 and he says, well, guys, you have been talking about spirituality and this and that. I want to ask you a question. Uh, I'll begin with you, Makario. Do you believe in God? And it surprised me. It hit me momentarily. And what is so interesting, this is something that has happened to me in my life a number of times. A totally spontaneous answer came to me without any problem. And I said to him, I believe in God because I believe in the unconscious. Really, at that moment, that represented my journey from childhood, uh, spending 25 years in a religious order of the Catholic Church, leaving the order, getting married, having a family, and coming into the world, and moving from a very dogmatic, organized way of religion to a very different way of experiencing myself and looking at the world. It was a very helpful phrase. But so what I would like to say about spirituality is that, of course, spirituality is colored by the culture of each person. In the Arab culture, there is a sense of spirituality that is very interesting, but very different from spirituality in some of the Western cultures. The Dalai Lama has a wonderful book. I have it here. And when I read the book, you see there is something very different how he works with spirituality versus the way how in the West, in the Western world deal with that. So when I talk about spirituality, I think basically, of course, it's from the way I have experienced and I practice it, is that I think that spirituality is basically a way how we develop the ability to experience harmony, even in the middle of conflict, frustration, and difficulties. That finding a way to experience harmony, uh, which is what we often do through a number of aspects of meditation, of progressive realization, and so forth, is so central. But it becomes even more central if there are some structural aspects that guide our life. And in my case, it is, I'll share that with you, Angelo, and with the audiences that... Uh, it's very interesting because even though my sense of religion is very, very different from uh, how I grew up and how I was trained in the religious order, yet there is a number of prayers from the Bible, from Psalms and so forth that very often I recite. I, I even recite them when I'm falling asleep. I especially love certain, certain phrases of the Psalms, which I love. Los cielos publican la gloria de Dios y el firmamento pregona las obras de sus manos. The skies announce the glory of God and the stars are examples of his glory. It's something like that. Mm. Now, it doesn't take me to the dogmatic thing of believing God and how is this and and how you conceptualize sin and this and that, all of that process that I went through. But for me, it's so interesting because it's like a mantra. When I say those words, it's like a mental shower that I give myself that eases me, relaxes me, and helps me in a number of situations, you know. I am not at all concerned with dogmatic belief in those moments. But what I have done, and this is where psychoanalysis has helped me tremendously, is that certain phrases that you have the signifiers operate for me in a way that 
they lighten burdens. This is one of a number of things, you know. I'll just that's one example I, I give you. There, there's other example, like I, I remember certain prayers in Latin because we studied Latin, of course. Uh, I remember the beginning of a, of a, of a prayer, Memorare Opiissima Virgo Maria. Remember, O pious, sweet Virgin Mary, which was very central in, in the education and even in my family of origin. When I say that, it's a connection with the feminine. And again, it's like a mantra. So this, what I'm saying is that spirituality is something that each person needs to develop in connection with her, his history, and how that person can use certain memories, certain events, certain episodes, certain phrases from his or her culture that can bring an element of harmony where you lighten up your burdens, your frustrations, and th that have a healing effect. Mm -hmm. Because that, that's what spirituality has, a healing effect, you know. Mm -hmm. So it's the way a person really finds the signifiers of their particular culture, their particular history, as well as I think a kind of bodily signifier in terms Absolutely. of how you're talking about like a relaxation. Yes, yeah. You see, there you have the, the signifiers operating, as I was saying before, as elevation. Yes. Rather, rather than embodiment. It is embodied but it's an embodiment that elevates, not that brings pathology. Yes. Beautiful. Mm -hmm. I think that's a perfect note to end on. I, I think that... We... <laughs> <laughs> Macario, I just want to thank you so much for taking this time. It has been so rich and enjoyable talking with you about all these ideas. Okay, very good, uh, Angela, and I hope it can, can be useful to many others to... Uh, for me to encourage them to really study Lacan, they will have to have a little bit of courage because yes. Lacan demands courage to read and study him, you know. Right, absolutely. Okay. All right, thank you, Macario, so much. Okay, ciao. Okay. Ciao. Yeah, bye.